Hello, friends and enemies. This is me, your co-host, Steffi Cohen. And today, I sit down with my co-host, Hayden Bow, and my co-co-co-host, Ian Kaplan. And we sit down with Dr. Eric Siddiqui. He is a family physician from Toronto, from Canada. And he was kind enough to take some time out of his busy, busy day to talk about the current health pandemic and health crisis that we've all been experiencing. Um, in this episode, we discuss everything from what coronavirus is, why it's so important that we slow down the transmission and we, and we, um, flatten the curve and practice social distance as well as what false claims and cures have been going around in social media and what's true and what isn't. I just got back from Toronto, Canada. So I am going to unfortunately have to self quarantine for the next 14 days, man. It really sucks when, uh, it's all, it's, you know, it's easy to say, that you should do these things, but when it actually applies to you, it really sucks. So, uh, hopefully I can lead by example in doing this over the next little bit. I've been self quarantining for the last week. Yeah. Honestly, it's quite nice. Yeah. Not bad. It's like yeah. a little vacation. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I also wanted to add, uh, that we at hybrid have now added an extra program for all of our existing members at no additional cost. It's called the hybrid at home program. It uses minimal equipment so that you can actually self quarantine, take the necessary precautions and not have to sacrifice your fitness. If you are not a current member of hybrid, it's still at no additional cost to you. You just have to sign up for a regular services and you will get accesses access to all programs, including that one. Um, as always, this podcast is brought to you by go strong equipment, the best equipment in the freaking world. Don't believe us. Come to hybrid and check it out yourself. Uh, backed by the best people. Thank you to them for all they do for us. And without further ado, let's get into this bonus episode of hybrid unlimited. Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to sit down and talk to us about the current health epidemic. A pandemic that we're facing. Um, I think it's really important for people like you to come on podcasts like ours and use platforms like mine to spread information that is evidence-based and that is up, you know, it keeps up with, with what's currently happening. So we really appreciate your time here. Hopefully we can give people more clarity about what's going on and what the best uh, measurements are. No problem. I appreciate the opportunity. I think it's, I think it's very important to not panic, but also to be humbled by this new virus that we don't know much about and to take the appropriate precautions so that we don't reach the point of needing panic. And I think we're thankfully in a, uh, we'll say a lucky place compared to some of the other countries in the world right now, where we have some time to hopefully quickly make significant changes to socially distance ourselves and prevent panic and prevent those uh, preventable deaths that are happening in Italy and other countries right now. Um, my, my first question for you is what, um, where do you work at? What are your credentials? What do you specialize in? 
sure. Well, I, I think for your audience, based on the description, I'll start with my, my fitness background. Uh, I, I worked as a full-time personal trainer for almost a decade before going to medical school. So I have about 10,000 hours of one-on-one personal training experience. Um, back in 2013, I was voted the Canadian fitness professional of the year by CanFit Pro. Um, I also worked as a professional fitness model before the days of Instagram. So actually getting paid to demonstrate exercises in publications. Uh, those were the days, but I did a lot of that. I did some work for muscle and fitness, a lot of work for maximum fitness, uh, before Robert Kennedy publishing, uh, stopped in Toronto. Um, I also founded a program here in London where we had medically supervised exercise and nutrition prescription for a number of years before medical school. And then I went back to school and I went to med school for a long time in Alberta and then came home and did my residency training here in Ontario. And I'm a full-time family physician here in Ontario. So I have a large cradle to grave practice where I do everything from antenatal care, postnatal care, palliative care, exercise prescription, nutrition prescription. Um, But most importantly, right now, I worry about the the older patients in my practice who are certainly high risk if they get this, this virus. What, are, what, what kind of, sorry. I'm sorry. What kind of conversation have you been having in your practice with some of those patients? Like how are those typically going? Good question. Uh, it's a conversation held from a six foot distance <laughs> for starters. So I, I'm actually trying not to even touch my patients, uh, any of them, if I don't have to, uh, especially those higher risk, I'm essentially just going inside the door. Uh, I did have a few of those this week with quite high risk patients where we're actually planning to do a lot of care through phone, uh, virtual care. So some of those patients I do have to check on every few weeks because they're quite high risk with a lot going on. So we're going to try to do it through phone, including family meetings and conferences, because we know that this thing can travel at least two meters or six feet. And just being in the office, if you're over age 65 with other health conditions, especially cardiorespiratory conditions, it's it's just not worth the risk. So that's also where primary care is going across the province this week, is the government has thankfully given us some extra tools to try and rebook visits by phone to prevent people from coming to the office if they don't need to, because just being around a healthcare facility puts you at risk of exposure. So what are the, what are the recommendations as far as if, if you're having symptoms and you visited one of these uh, countries that are like China and what's the other one, Iran and Italy, Italy. Uh, what, yeah, what are the, what's the protocol? So it may differ in the United States. I can tell you the updated information here in Ontario, Canada. So originally we said that only people from high risk countries should self-isolate for 14 days. That narrative has changed. So over the last week, now we're recommending that any person outside of Canada coming home should self-isolate. And any person who has not traveled abroad but developed symptoms, and you asked about what those symptoms were, we think that the most common ones are fever, cough, or new or worsening shortness of breath. Those people should also self-isolate for 14 days. So if you've traveled outside of Canada and are coming home, including Michigan or Ohio, it doesn't matter. Self-isolate for 14 days. 
Or if you haven't traveled but developed those symptoms, you should self-isolate for 14 days. And of course, there's other nuances in those recommendations. For example, you've seen the Toronto Raptors and some NBA players. If you've come in contact with somebody who tests positive for coronavirus 19, you also should self-isolate for 14 days. And that's what a lot of professional athletes are doing right now. When you talk about the symptoms, you, uh, is it and or or? So do you need to have all three of those symptoms? You, can you have one and think that you have coronavirus? What's the deal? It's, it's or. or. If you develop a new fever without an easy explanation, like crushing a big leg workout, stay home, okay? Because you could have the virus. Or if you develop a new cough, stay home. Or if you develop shortness of breath, stay home because you could have the virus. And I think, again, the important message for your followers, and you have a huge following that I suspect is less than age 30 or 35, probably in their 20s. Mm -hmm. These people can often have the virus without symptoms. So again, if you have a close friend or family member that you've interacted with that may very well test positive for COVID-19 in the next few weeks or months, stay home self-isolate for 14 days because there's a good chance you could have the virus without symptoms and will shed it to people higher risk like those elderly patients in my practice or your grandparents, your mother, your aunt or your uncle. Those are the people we're trying to protect through social distancing and self-isolation. It seems like this particular strand of virus is more easily transmittable. Um, is that one of the reasons why um, people are being more wary and more Um, you know, trying to make people more aware of what's going on. I mean, people love to call it fear mongering, but is it the transmission rate that it's just too fast or why is it that what makes this virus particularly different? Yeah, I think that's a good question about how do we measure um, the infectivity of a virus and what's our sense of where COVID-19 sits relative to others. Yeah, because you hear a lot of people comparing it to things yeah. like uh, the common flu and, and you know, they take raw stat versus raw stat and say, well, look at this stat. And uh, when you take a look at the flu, it's worse in this regard. And that's why we should take we shouldn't be taking COVID-19 so seriously. I think that's a good question. And I think it all has to do with your perspective and for all of us to put on our public health perspective hats on for a second. So a lot of people making those uh, debates or claims online are looking at, at it from an individual perspective, just themselves as a healthy 25-year-old or 30-year-old, and they're getting lost in the numbers. Take a step back and look at this from a healthcare perspective nationwide and a public health perspective. So we know that we're still in the cold weather months when we already have influenza and other viruses that cause those most vulnerable to be sick and use the healthcare system more. So I can tell you that here in Ontario, a lot of our emergency departments and intensive care facilities, they're already at maximum capacity. They're at 100. And I'm not sure how things are in Florida, but in Ontario, there have been countless stories in the media over the last six months around wait times, people high risk having to stand in hallways because there aren't beds available, our hospitals are maxed. Now picture a new virus being integrated into society that say, just for argument's sake, it's equivalent to just the flu. So we have double the flu in a healthcare system already at 100% capacity. But we think coronavirus could potentially have more deaths than the flu eventually and potentially be more infectious than the flu. But even if it was equivalent, 
double what we already have. And that's the importance of flattening the curve. So it's about not overwhelming the healthcare system by having any new viruses that can cause critical illness and death in humans. And that's the trouble right now. And the other point is it has been difficult to contain. Of course, we saw what happened with Ebola a number of years ago, but it was fairly effectively contained, right? We didn't have cases locally. That's not the case with coronavirus, although, of course, the death rate isn't nearly as high, but we're not being very successful to contain it. And there's two risks with that. Risk number one, we overwhelm the healthcare system. And my colleagues in intensive care, instead of having 10 full beds, now have 100 people present to one hospital, all needing critical care and urgent assessments and some ventilation. And then they have to make hard decisions like in Italy. Some get care and some don't. And the other challenge with the quickly spreading virus is it doesn't buy us time to develop a vaccine. Hence the importance of flattening the curve. If we have less bombardment on the healthcare system, it also buys us time to try and have more effective treatments. Because right now it's essentially supportive care. Do you potentially need an emergency assessment, ventilatory support, an ICU admission? But right now we don't have an easy fix for this virus. So I think it's important to keep in mind the context of most of our hospitals are already at 100% capacity. So any level of infectivity uh, really will put a tax on the healthcare system, and we're still learning. So to give you an easy answer, is it twice as infective or three or four? It's tough to speculate, and I think people making firm claims around that are, are premature. It's still so new, and that's why we call it a novel virus. Absolutely. Yeah, you you bring up some really, really great points. I think people people really overestimate the um, the readiness that they think that or, or the, how equipped they think that hospitals are to manage something like this. I was just talking to a friend of mine who works here in Miami Jackson um, and he was telling me there's like somewhere between three and five negative air pressure rooms only. Um, they don't have N95 masks. They're being told to reuse them or to use them for a whole shift or to bring them from home. And you know, that just, it's, it's part of the reality and it's part of what makes this thing so scary, right? If it accelerates at the rate that it's being predicted, just the infrastructure is not, or the hospitals aren't equipped to, to deal with it. I am. I agree. And I, And where they free up resources, they pull from other potential vital areas, right? So people who agree, right? People who could who get otherwise normal care might not have access to that care. They're using ORs for ICU beds, right? They're using tools that are normally reserved for ORs, right? In critical care, and now you can't do potentially life saving surgery on people who have nothing related to the virus. How long? And just to make sure that we. Um, clear up a myth from fact uh, based on what we know. So in terms of how it's spread, you mentioned negative pressure rooms and N95 masks. Mm -hmm. So again, this is based on the current recommendations in Canada. So we know now that this thing is spread through droplets, okay? Coughs, sneezes, and it's not necessarily airborne. It's through droplets that travel up to six feet. So if you're treating somebody or testing somebody, it's droplet precautions and not airborne precautions right now, at least in Canada. So you don't have to wear an N95. You have to wear a surgical mask, a face shield, and a gown and gloves for droplet precautions, but not airborne precautions. That was one of the changes in the last few weeks from public health here in Canada. And that's going to affect how I practice this week, because if we have higher risk cases, that's what I'll be wearing 
And of course, again, to your point, we also need to find droplet precaution gowns and have them accessible to providers, hence not overwhelming the system. Mm -hmm. If I have dozens of people come to my office, I don't have anything right now. We're waiting for them to arrive. I have the swabs to potentially do the test if we can find somewhere to send them, but I don't even have the right protective equipment to do the swabs. Two questions about this. Okay, I understand that it's droplet. Uh, it's not airborne, it's droplet. But how long is the virus alive? On surfaces. On In the air or on surfaces? Great question. It depends on the temperature and the type of surface. I think ballpark number in general will say a handful of days, whether that's three days or four days or potentially nine days on a colder surface. But just think days. And that's, again, the importance of being careful with what you're doing in your everyday life. I, I exercised at home today. I'll probably post a picture online later. Breaks your heart. I'm like you guys. I'm a gym junkie. Yeah. I'm, I'm still a fitness bodybuilder at heart. I crush lifts on Sundays. And this is the first leg day on a Sunday I literally did in my basement. I did split squats. I did walking lunges in my basement. Um, and I don't have a home gym. I've been putting off on building one. So I picked up two dumbbells yesterday. And with only 50 pounds, I tried to train my legs um, and really high volume chest work just to get some blood flow and a pump. But it's to protect yourself because the gym is one of the highest risk areas. And, and there's things you don't think about your cell phone. I went to the gym. Uh, my last workout was a number of days ago at our local gym. It'll probably be my last for a while. I coated my phone in, in cleanser and alcohol because people don't even think about those things. You set your phone down on the floor, a piece of equipment, you're potentially spreading the virus through those surfaces, right? So those are your high risk areas right now. Gyms, bars, restaurants. St. Patrick's Day is, is what, Tuesday? where we could potentially have thousands of young people spitting and sneezing and sweating on each other in tight bars all across Florida, many of them having the virus. There's, there's talk that there's potentially a few thousand people in Ohio that just haven't been tested that are walking around with the virus about to party and celebrate St. Patrick's Day. So that's a big concern of mine is St. Patrick's Day on Tuesday and young people not taking this seriously and exponentially spreading this through what we call community transmission. Yeah, I think there's also a huge misconception about uh, the age of people who are vulnerable to to getting the virus too. Because I saw that uh, post yes. that just went out. I can't remember who posted it or if it was you even. Um, but basically... Uh, all the countries that were only testing people who had symptoms showed that uh, young people were had very low instances of being carriers. But then in places like South Korea, where they were doing mandatory uh, testing or, or broad testing, they were showing huge numbers of people who are carriers without showing symptoms. Correct. So the limitation right now is testing. You're right. So based on the current guidelines, only those high risk or symptomatic um, in hospital, critically ill, they're getting tested. You're absolutely right. So point number one, a lot of younger people could have it uh, without knowing it. Point number two, we do know that younger people are susceptible to this virus. So yes, we know that older people with other health conditions have the higher death risk, but it's not a mathematical formula. You can't say you're 35 and guaranteed to survive this virus or at least not get critically ill. And also the more data we're getting, it's showing that it varies by region. And again, we're not sure why. So there's there's trickling information from Seattle right now saying that there are actually younger people that are getting critically ill in Seattle right now. There's another stat from France saying that of the 300 people currently critically ill in France, 
half are under age 50. So although, yes, your death risk is 14, 15 percent uh, over age 80, but there's no guarantees in life. And I think, it, again, it's important to just be humbled. This is new. We don't have all the answers. Right. And, you know, I think, again, to reframe it, when we don't have all the answers and we have something that can overwhelm the healthcare system, you have to think the worst, hope for the best, and you'll probably lie somewhere in the middle. Right. So if we take all these precautions, there will be, unfortunately, there will be deaths and there have been multiple in the U.S. already. And we had our first in Canada last week. But if we know what could happen, which is the worst, hope for the best, take the precautions. Hopefully we won't have a situation like Italy. But if we have thousands of young people partying for St. Patrick's Day on Tuesday, not caring, days later, grandma gets it. Grandpa gets it. Their aunt or uncle gets it. Or they spread it to somebody who then spreads it to their aunt and uncle. It's the community spread through asymptomatic young people. That's the biggest concern. And unfortunately, even here in Canada, there's videos of people yesterday here in Ontario, in Kingston, Ontario. There were crowds of people near the university partying yesterday saying they don't care because they're young. They're sure they'll get through it. That's the concern right now. I think we all just have to take it seriously and, and do our part to protect those most vulnerable. I, I think this is, it's, this is the most difficult part. I think the education component in the, in the, in communicating the right message to this particular demographic and group of individuals that are slightly taking this way too lightheartedly and, and not taking the measurements and precautions that are necessary in a situation like this. I hate to read messages or hear messages about, um, conspiracy theories about politics, about fear mongering from the government. I really, it's, it, it really puts me in a really bad mood. I, I hope that a lot of people listen to this, that listen to this podcast are able to understand the message that we're trying to get across. Just with my last post, uh, that I made a few hours ago, the main point was, Hey, don't panic. All right. Don't be hysteric. I'm not trying to be alarmist. However, avoid big crowds, wash your hands, stay at home if you can. And most of the responses to that were exactly what we're talking about. Oh, I'm young. Um, nothing's going to happen. This is just like the flu. People are, be this is, this is all a conspiracy. China, China created the virus. This is to kill people and help the economy in the long run. Like this is so frustrating. The, the one that always I... happens, right? When you have a, <coughs> a, some, a novel, especially with viruses, people love to create conspiracy theories about the origin of the virus. Of course. Right? That's happened with almost every major epidemic. Yeah. I, I think well, one of the other I ones that there's... I've seen that, Go that, ahead. that uh, bothers me too is when people, I've heard from a number of people, um, that they think that this thing is already out of control and there's basically no way to stop it. So why take precaution at all? Uh, is there anything that you would say to those people who just think that there's no use in fighting it because we're too far gone? I'd say they're wrong. And I'd say we have excellent evidence to suggest that they're wrong. One of the most mm -hmm. powerful things we can do in public health is control community transmission through social distancing. So unfortunately, it sounds like in the US, especially in some uh, states that there, again, there could be hundreds or thousands of people with it without symptoms. You socially distance yourself. You don't go to the gym. You don't go to the bar. And again, that's how you flatten the curve. So yes, lots of people probably have this virus. 
but you take it seriously, you flatten the curve, you distance yourself, you don't overwhelm the healthcare system. So there's at least just a constant trickle of cases. But if there's a tidal wave of cases because of people who don't take it seriously, then we have the pandemic that's been declared by the World Health Organization. And we're hopefully not going to get to that point in Ontario, but based on videos I saw yesterday from Kingston and kids partying and, and still conglomerating in these big groups with alcohol rubbing shoulders, mm-hmm. the risk is there. So to those people, I'll say, no, there is hope. We have excellent evidence that these measures work. And thankfully, they're not extreme. You're like you're saying, they're practical. Yeah, exactly. Hang out with your immediate family. So social distancing essentially means spending time with nobody beyond your immediate family if you can, okay? So on weekends, you're seeing your mom, your dad, your spouse, your children, but you're not going to have a neighborhood party with your neighbors if you're socially distancing yourself. You're not going to go to hockey practice. You're going to put St. Patrick's Day off by a month. You're going to put off those dinner plans with a whole bunch of friends in a small living room by a few weeks. That's socially distancing yourself. Uh, and if we all do our part, again, we can prevent um, more deaths. Now, unfortunately, in the U.S., it sounds like things are worse than here in Canada. Um, but I do think the risk is there in Canada. And we can't just feel protected because it's not as bad yet. Again, public health interventions are about prevention, mm-hmm. acting before there is the tidal wave. And that's the whole point. You picture the worst. You hope for the best. You do your precautions and you'll probably hopefully lie somewhere in the middle or better if you're lucky. Do you do you agree with the the messages that are being sent from the media as far as what this is and and what what needs to be done? Or do you think that it, it it's think, created a lot more fear than it needed to? I think that's a good question. And I, I think I think this is an important message just in general to your followers and any of mine around being a savvy consumer of health information. So it depends Mm -hmm. on the source. So I have seen some quote unquote media outlets and companies make ridiculous claims over the last week, whether it's essential oils or specific diets or taking vitamin C. If you see that, correct. Put on your skeptical hat. (laughs) If no world health expert on the planet is supporting that statement, be skeptical. And it's not a conspiracy theory. And I, and I think, again, there, there's a lot of general undertones to what's happening right now. And one of them is around uh, lost trust in the medical community for various reasons. And that's a conversation for another day. Um, but I, it's interesting that some people would still rather trust their local multi-level marketing salesperson uh, because they have a great following and they're charismatic than potentially their local medical officer of health who has very clear to the point practical information right now that although it doesn't sound sexy, i.e. washing your hands and distancing yourself, really is the most evidence-based thing to do. So regardless of the news source, be skeptical if there's a claim that nobody else is making, first of all. But if no credible expert isn't making it, then be skeptical. And those experts would be people that have... MDs with specialized training in public health, your local chief medical officer of health, infectious disease experts, those are the people to listen to right now. And I I think this is, um, I'll reflect it back to you, um, because you certainly have more influence in the fitness community than I do. But it's also been somewhat disappointing to see 
some fitness influencers become overnight infectious disease experts and share very strong personal opinions, giving health recommendations to their followers that directly contradict what's being shared by public health. Yeah, I mean, fitness influencers generally share strong, unsubstantiated opinions, but just the cost of doing so is much lower normally. So now when the costs are very high, it becomes very unsettling appropriately. Social platforms can be used to do a lot of good, but can also be used to do a lot of damage, sometimes unknowingly, right? Um, but it, it goes it goes above just social media platforms. It's it's the media, the news. I wonder if, and I hope honestly that this situation makes us able to have a better plan of action as far as how this information gets out there. Because there's, like you said, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of conflicting information as well uh, that's created, generated a lot of panic and hysteria on the streets and cities, including Miami. I mean, this is insane here. This I, I feel like I, I was born and raised in Venezuela. I feel like I'm in Venezuela right now. The shelves are empty. People are panicking. There's no toilet paper. There's no eggs. So I think that something needs to be done about the way that we share information about public health. Really? Yeah. And I do I think totally social agree. media, I think social media is, is a lot of that problem too, because right. Facebook optimizes for that kind of information, right? People are getting more of their information from these, you know, uh, these sources that aren't properly vetted than from institutional sources. And they've been trained to not look at institutional sources for, for, for guidance. So, and they're validated in their conspiracy theories by the things that are presented to them via these recommendation algorithms, right? Which is a huge problem as it kind of feeds the narrative they want to see. And these big tech companies that are profiting off of that have an obligation in the interest of public health and some of them, and they're trying to move in that direction, but it's a very hard problem to solve. But the, I agree. And there's, yeah, go ahead. There is some evidence now around that. Um, Dr. Tim- Timothy Caulfield is a great PhD to follow here in Canada who uh, does pump out some pretty good data around misinformation online. Uh, and there was a couple published last year, essentially suggesting the importance of uh, people like yourselves um, and hopefully myself, the people think I'm evidence-based um, and other docs uh, to try and dilute that information. But one of the challenges right now is there just aren't a lot of those people online. And the mm-hmm. people that are masters of the social media algorithms, to your point, and are, are better on camera, more comfortable with video, have access to the equipment and know how to use it, unfortunately, a lot of them uh, either aren't evidence-based um, or, uh, in the worst cases, um, are selling products just simply unproven and making false claims. So the challenge is getting people like medical officers of health <laughs> and their teams uh, more savvy with social media, having a greater presence. And um, it's been really interesting here locally, the county where I practice, I think the entire population of the county is 50,000 people. Uh, I posted a video on Friday around social distancing and just in simple terms, explaining what it means to flatten the curve. It's had a thousand shares and almost 50,000 views in 72 hours. It's crazy. 
easy. Um, and the feedback that I'm getting from people is just, hey, thanks. It's great to just see a doc on video using it in simple terms and explaining what this means. I was wondering why, you know, the media and public health is recommending this is so this is so important. And they are explaining it, but I think explaining it in a simple social media format reaches a lot of those other people who may not take the time to go to the local public health website to read those recommendations because they're there. But to your point, trying to dilute the misinformation in those platforms where the people are is that mystery. And how to do that as busy docs like myself, where I'm I'm barely squeezing it in right now, but during a busy clinic week in a month, sometimes I'll go silent for a month because I just have to focus on my practice. I just don't have the time. That makes sense. I have a couple more questions for you. I won't, I won't take too much more of your time. Um, what, uh, in terms of the evolution of this virus, are we, you know, what are the chances or what are we looking at in terms of, um, mutations in worst case scenarios? The evidence-based answer is we don't know quite honestly, because, and that relates to people who ask about reinfection. So can you have the virus and get it a second time? We don't know. No, maybe, but we do know that viruses mutate, right? Just like the flu. Hence why the flu shot changes every year. So we just don't have those answers yet. And I, I think it's very early to, to speculate. But one thing I can say, though, uh, fairly confidently, is there are thousands of people across America that have this virus and just haven't been able to be tested yet. And that speculation is with fairly good confidence. And I would take that seriously. If there's anything to take from this conversation, it's to respect it. There's a good chance that you may know somebody that has it and to take those precautions. That's most important because I think people are getting lost in the details. The, the 0.1 deci decimal, uh, decimal, the uh, how infectious is it? Can I get infected a second time? Take a step back, socially distance yourself. If you have symptoms, isolate for 14 days. If you've been out of America, isolate for 14 days. Stop going to bars. Stop going to restaurants. You may not want to see your grandmother or grandfather for the next two weeks until things settle and you see how many cases are in your community. Those are the important broad stroke messages to keep repeating. And being repetitive isn't a problem right now. Keep reinforcing those simple messages. That's most important. While we get the information on the fine details. That's perfect. That's, that's a great ending to this podcast. You think you crushed it. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. And hopefully this podcast gets shared hundreds of thousands, of, if not millions of times. Yeah. And thank you uh, for and the I content. I have to say that. Uh, Go ahead. It's a humbling podcast with people that outlift me by so many pounds. <laughs> I, I saw your... I saw your platform. I mean, I certainly take pride in being a lifelong lifter and bodybuilder. This year's 22 years of lifting. And I looked at your platform last night and was shocked. You are strong. You both are strong. So keep up the great work. And I think it's also important for me to point out that um, you passed the BS test. Um, as I was saying yesterday, um, I really like that your information is evidence-based. Um, your website looked great and, and you're just spreading a message of that's practical um, and hopefully minus the fake news that we see everywhere else right now so keep up the great work and keep lifting heavy um, exercise is still our best medicine and a lot of us will have to adapt 
and potentially find other ways to get exercise and our best medicine, especially you in Florida, the next few weeks, it's going to get dicey. So mm-hmm. that's another conversation would be how to adapt your exercise in the future, but keep up the great work. You're both crushing it. I appreciate that. Hey, where, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on most platforms. So at Dr. Eric Siddiqui on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and I also have a YouTube channel. And that's I mean, Eric, uh, with an, with an, Eric er, with an, with an a. a, yeah, we'll, we'll link it at the bottom. Yeah. Hey, thank you for all the content you've been putting out. Uh, I wish there were more, um, jacked, uh, doctors out there who can get people's attention with thumbnails. <laughs> so yeah. people actually listen. Um, and you're very relatable too. Yeah. So thank you for that. I hope you keep doing it. It's, uh, it's been really helpful to have you on the podcast and I hope a lot of people get a lot out of this. No problem. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. We'll chat soon. Thanks. Keep fighting the fight.